Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins on the local news roundup. Following a heated debate and input from residents, Charlotte City Council votes to recriminalize certain behavioral ordinances. The city appears to be getting us ready for a possible property tax increase needed to meet costs outlined in the budget they are now developing. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg comes to Charlotte to make an infrastructure announcement. Big money coming to modernize the airport. Early voting is underway in the primary. CMS considers changes to the calendar, and the Hornets are on a winning streak. Is that right? Sure. Okay. Here to talk about that and more is Eli Portillo, senior editor for WFAE News, and Ann Doss Helms, WFAE's education reporter. Good morning to both of you. Happy Good Friday. Morning. Yeah. Nick Oxner is with us. He's chief investigative reporter and executive producer of investigations at WBTV. Nick, good morning to you. Good morning. Happy Friday. And Mary Ramsey is with us again. She is local government accountability reporter for the Charlotte Observer. Good morning. Good morning. So it was an eventful Monday night at Charlotte City Council. There were several hours of debate over whether or not to recriminalize certain ordinances centering on public behaviors like uh, public urination and defecation and masturbation, something I never thought I'd talk about on the radio. But council voted seven to three to reinstitute criminal penalties. Similar penalties went away in 2021 when the state voted to get rid of them, but they allowed municipalities to put them back into place if they saw fit. Clearly, Charlotte sees fit. So what has happened since 2021 to to cause council to reconsider restoring these criminal penalties? Eli? Well, really a few things. The first is that um, the COVID pandemic is the bigger context here, and that has emptied out Uptown. If you, you know, remember when the streets were basically totally empty for a year or two there, People Mm -hmm. have started to come back, but the work number of workers and number of uh, people there on a daily basis is still lower. And that has really, I think, amplified kind of the background, um, you know, disorder. If there's 50 people in a park and one person's uh, peeing on a tree, it might not be as noticeable as if there's 10 people in a park and one person is. Um, So I think that made these problems more apparent. And the second thing is residents last year came to city council and said, hey, we are seeing this more. We are dealing with uh, problems like people using the bathroom in public, and it is really starting to impact our quality of life. A group of fourth ward residents in particular um, has pushed for these ordinances to be recriminalized and give police back the power to arrest people for these offenses. Uh, And that's what the city council agreed to this week. And council has been talking about this. They've been kicking this idea around for several weeks because it is a little uh, dicey, and we'll talk about why in a moment. And on Monday, there were several hours of debate, including more than 30 residents speaking for and against and sharing their experiences. The frequent drinking and drug use in the park, loud arguments and violence resulting from the drinking, being flashed by people urinating right beneath my balcony, One fourth ward resident held up a picture of what he said was human waste next to a little free library in the park. No child should have to be exposed to that when they are just trying to read a book in a park. 
You know, parents should have to make a, a choice of whether to read with their children or to avoid raw human waste. And those who spoke against recriminalizing the ordinances brought up other concerns. I wholly understand why we don't want people to urinate and defecate in public spaces, but the way to achieve this is not by criminalizing the act, but by providing alternatives. And this is our moral responsibility to provide these alternatives. We must put ourselves in the place of our unhoused neighbors, who are our brothers and sisters, who would love to have a safe, private place to take care of their bodily functions. Can you imagine the embarrassment and the shame of not having such a place? Of the 30-plus people who spoke to counsel on this topic, on which side of this issue were the, was, were the majority of people who spoke? Does anybody the know majority the answer? Of people we're definitely opposed to the ordinances. We heard from a number of people who work with organizations such as Roof Above that work directly with our homeless population in Charlotte, as well as a couple of people who acknowledged that they had previously been unhoused, um, sharing their personal experiences and the issues they think these ordinances could create for that community. Yeah, one of the big concerns here was about criminalizing certain of these behaviors because they would hit those who have limited resources and limited options the hardest, people who are already behind the eight ball. And although CMPD will now be able to issue these penalties, these criminal fines, I guess, uh, when Mayor Vile Isles was on this program on Wednesday, she stressed that CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings would be judicious. The chief said that this is a tool in the toolbox and that he is going to look at this. We'll be getting reports from him on what they've done. And if it begins to sway away, we'll have to go back and do a check. And I think that we, we're going to try some things. We've got to try something different. So CMPD was, in fact, in favor of reinstituting these ordinances. But the ACLU sent a statement against the ordinances. And more of the residents, as you say, who spoke to council were also against them. But the council voted seven to three in favor. Uh, but these behaviors include more than just what we talked about in terms of necessary bodily functions. Uh, they will also criminalize possession of open containers and disposal of those containers, beer and wine consumption, I guess on the streets, uh, and soliciting from the street or median strip. So go, let's go through those. Will this end that last practice? Because as everybody who's driven in Charlotte knows, every corner on a major intersection has somebody sitting there with a cup. Well, I think there are a few issues here. One is, um, as has been pointed out, there's some irony in criminalizing open containers in uh, <laughs> while we're also having social districts. You know, I brought implemented. that up to the I brought that up to the mayor, and it went yep. right over her head, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> deliberately. I think that there is also a uh, an issue of you know resources and enforcement here. We've already heard CMPD is uh, is undermanned, and they are hiring people and closing that gap, but you know, are they really going to devote a ton of resources to busting panhandlers in the street medians who aren't also causing, you know, uh, other other issues or other things? I think, you know, that's an open question. Um, so I think so, a lot of it's going to come down to enforcement decisions, and the police well, have a lot of discretion here. When, when I asked the mayor about what, whether this would end the practice of people sitting in these median strips or on the corners of like Woodlawn and South Boulevard or Tivola and South Boulevard or the entrance to Costco uh, on Tivola Road and uh, downtown, uh, would it stop the practice? She, was, she didn't answer the question. Uh, let's put it that way. So 
will this end the practice? If somebody is caught raising, uh, if, if you're given a criminal fine, will you simply move to another intersection or will you be hurt? Because in many cases, I guess it's true that this is the only way these people live. Well, Charlotte's a big city, you know, more than 300 square miles. We have a ton of intersections and medians. So, yes, and that is a big issue with this whole thing is people on one side say, hey, police need the ability to arrest people, to enforce these. And on the other side, they say, "Okay, so you get arrested, you spend a night in jail, you're back out on the streets in the park, your situation is the same. So what's really Mm going to change? I think what makes this issue kind of interesting is it's not like the abortion debate where you have diametrically opposed sides where one side says no abortion ever and one side says you know you should have the right to choose this is kind of like people want the same things largely there's nobody who's really like the constituency in favor of people using the bathroom in public and having to beg on the streets uh there are questions about how to achieve that yeah, I hate to do predictions, but I think it's safe to predict that none of these practices will be ended by these ordinances. It's a tool to control it. So I think what you would be more likely to see is if you have a spot where you're seeing a lot of complaints, a lot of concerns, you might see police move in there and try to deal with that somehow, which could include taking some people to jail or you know mm-hmm. imposing fines. But there's just no way, like you said, it's you know this is across the county you're not going to see a sweep in all the intersections cleared. So getting back to the uh, public urination portion of this, uh, City Council's Renee Johnson was one of the no votes, and she asked those in the council chamber how many times they had to use the bathroom in the course of a day and then asked what they would do if they were homeless. Now, would the threat of an arrest have diminished the urgency of that? No, I did it right then and there. And that points to the problem of a lack of public facilities. But Mayor Vi Lyles told our listeners on Wednesday that council was already making provisions to add public toilets uptown. We would have two of the portable um, toilets that will be placed on county property in the center city that are on the way. And so we have until March 1st to enact these things. So these ordinances, the criminal penalties go into effect on March the 1st. Uh, They will have public toilets in place? How many? Where? Do we know? So there's going to be two porta potties that were actually installed earlier this week on county property uptown. The city is paying for those for about six months. Additionally, they're also exploring a couple of other locations in and around uptown where they could install a couple more. And the city's also looking at purchasing a couple of what are called Portland Loos, which are specially designed porta potties from a company in Portland, Oregon, um, that are specifically geared towards helping people experiencing homelessness have a safe space for hygiene. So, Mary, your understanding is that these will be the, those blue plastic cabinets that are called portajohns that we see at festivals. Because the mayor, spe- I asked the, the mayor that, well, will these be portajohns? And she specifically said no, that they would not be so, like the festivals, that they would be these uh, loos that you refer to. The loos are probably going to come, but they have not come yet. So, in the interim, they will be using portajohns the kind of things like you said you would see at a public event um, sort of as a temporary hold for about six months um, and then looking into purchasing these Portland Loos, which are again a more permanent installation and are specially designed by this company out of Oregon um, to address issues that come up with people experiencing homelessness and bathroom access. 
Okay. So uh, allegedly, these will make the city safer and cleaner, certainly cleaner, uh, if they go into effect, and they are effective, in fact. But the other concern that we haven't talked about is that if you are arrested, you now have a criminal record. And people with criminal records have difficulty getting jobs. They have difficulty getting housing. Uh, Charlotte is all for finding housing for the homeless. Uh, are they working against themselves in this? Because that could end up being a problem for some of these folks, right? That was a that was a point that uh, Liz Clayson Kelly and some other advocates made is like, hey, these are people who already have a lot stacked against them. If you get a criminal record for public urination, you know, you're, you're kind of just uh, making that task harder. At the same time, the police um, and police chief Jennings have been pretty consistent saying this is not the first thing we're going to do. We're not going to see someone, you know, using the bathroom in public and instantly swoop in and arrest them. We're going to have verbal warnings and conversations first. And this is like a last resort. So I think it's going to come down to how individual police officers choose to enforce that, which, of course, you know, leaves a lot of discretion and uh, and some more power um, in the in the police officers hands. Given the uh, number of homeless people that we seem to have on the streets uptown and elsewhere in Charlotte, did anybody discuss the number of uh, portable restroom facilities or permanent outdoor restroom facilities that we really could uh, would need to, to really put an end to this problem? Yeah. Um, Council member Lawana Mayfield said, hey, people are criticizing us for starting with two. Is that really a lot? She said, well, it's two more than were there last week. So, you know, this is not a a cheap thing. You know, this is tens of thousands or more of dollars when you talk about installing them and maintaining them on a permanent basis. Um, so, you know, she was basically saying, hey, give us uh, give us a little time to build this up here. At the same time, it's not only something that affects homeless people. If you've been walking around uptown and you've got to go, it's tough. Okay, we have to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the city budget process, which is ongoing, and a possible property tax increase as a result. Pete Buttigieg was in town giving big money to the airport yesterday, and we have the Trails Camp, Trails Carolina, that we need to talk about as well. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car-buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. It's the local news roundup, which explains why Eli Portillo is here from WFA News, along with uh, Ann Doss Helms, our education reporter, Nick Oxner from WBTV, and Mary Ramsey from the Charlotte Observer. City Council uh, also continued discussions on Monday on their upcoming budget, and they are conducting listening sessions to hear what residents think the budget priorities should be. Uh, but they also heard on Monday night that rapidly rising costs may impact uh, what we can actually do. And uh, I, I'm wondering if this came as a surprise, because last summer, I think it was, uh, City Manager Marcus Jones warned that uh, keeping after the assessment, keeping our property taxes rate, our property tax rate revenue neutral might not be possible because of the needs of a growing city. He said that, in fact, a property tax might be necessary, an, in an increase. So what are they trying to fund that may necessitate that increase? Well, yeah. salaries are the biggest single thing here. Um, the gap between 
what the city um, has in projected revenue and what they need to fund um, just the staff they have now, never mind cost of living raises, is a few tens of millions. Um, if you look back at the last few years, the lowest paid hourly employees in the city of Charlotte have seen a nearly 40% raise since uh, pre-pandemic, and uh, their wages are now averaging $22 an hour. Uh, police and firefighters, those are up um, 21% and 17% on average, respectively. And some of those uh, supervisor salaries are uh, approaching um, six-figure averages or have crossed that line. Yeah. And the city says, hey, we have to do this to hire people. Our vacancies soared. Everyone knows how inflation has been the last few years. So, you know, to hire the people who pick up the trash and do those really important things, guess what? We got to pay for it. And- that costs more money, and they're probably going to have to raise property taxes to fund that. So it is that, but it's also the cost of materials, because you just mentioned inflation. Yep. And Hannah Bromberger, who is the city strategy and budget department, or with the city strategy and budget department, had a fairly simple explanation. Even though inflation in the construction industry has normalized to those traditional levels of growth, prices are not returning to those prior year prices. And City of Charlotte engineer Jennifer Smith pointed to the infrastructure of a growing city uh, and the rising costs of things like, this is really mundane, concrete pipe. Uh, that now costs $138 a linear foot, up from $100 in 2020. So a 38% increase over that time period. We use a lot of concrete pipe in our projects. Has anyone uh, projected how much any city of Charlotte property tax increase might be to pay for all of this? Not so far that I've seen. They're just starting their initial workshops and their feedback sessions, as you said. So, you know, I think it's going to be a little while before we get to the the nuts and bolts of how much. But yeah, it's it's very clear. And, you know, the council members, the two Republican council members who are especially skeptical, um, you know, they said like, yep, here it comes. So okay. I think no one is going to be surprised that that's where we end up. Stay tuned. Uh, huzzah, huzzah, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was in town yesterday, back in town. He comes here a lot, uh, this time to announce major funding for uh, Charlotte Douglas International Airport, the seventh busiest airport in the world. 118,000 people come through Charlotte Douglas International Airport every day. And just to put that in perspective, that's more than the entirety uh, of the number of people who attended the Super Bowl, all walking through the, the uh, halls of this terminal every single day. And so it's time for this airport to be positioned to evolve again and grow. And that's why I'm here to congratulate this community and this airport on $27 million to modernize and improve the terminals here and improve the passenger experience for everybody who comes through TLC. He meant to say CLT, which he said earlier in his speech. He just got confused there. But we're now getting this $27 million of the almost $1 billion coming from Washington. How will it be used? It's going to be used to purchase 16 new jet bridges. These are the walkways that you walk on to and from your plane, from your gate um, when you're boarding and deplaning. And we need these because we have more gates or we have to replace older bridges? Secretary Buttigieg said this is about modernizing the jet bridges at CLT, making sure that they're working properly, that they're safe and comfortable, and that they've got comfortable, clean air for folks traveling on them. 
And the other thing, the- Mike, is when these old jet bridges stop working it mm-hmm. or, you know, break down for a minute, it can delay on time departures and arrivals. And so this is also a performance metric. So Governor Roy Cooper was also at TLC yesterday <laughs> to, to mark the infusion of cash. Getting people from one place to the next in the quickest, safest, cleanest, most convenient way is critical for all of us. So there's that. But this is part of President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, which was touted as bringing a once in a lifetime set of investments to communities nationwide. It will spread the money among 114 airports with a goal to modernize them to improve passenger experiences and to create jobs. The jobs that these projects that Charlotte Douglas will create, are they just construction or will they last after construction is over? And what construction is there to put in these these gates? They're pretty much self-built, aren't they? And you just install them? Yeah, I'm not an expert in that. Okay. But I mean, I do I do want to be a cynic here and say, point out it's an election year. North Carolina is a potential swing state. And, you know, $27 million. Sure, I would take it. But the airport has a couple billion dollars worth of construction and work in progress right now. So when uh, when I heard Secretary Pete was coming down here to announce that amount, I thought, "Eh, if it wasn't an election year, this seems like the kind of thing that would be announced from the comfort of Washington. Well, and and in that same vein, it's worth pointing out that we've had the president here, we've had the vice president, we've had the first lady all in the last, what, month, six weeks or so. And so hard to argue the fact that we are squarely on the White House's map here for visits. So as I it's also it, worth noting that out of the 114 grants, Charlotte was not getting the biggest one, and yet it was where the White House decided to launch this nationwide campaign about uh, the latest round of grants. In fact, we have 80, as I understand it, 86 million dollars in construction projects at the airport, uh, and this is 27 million. And is it specifically earmarked for the sky bridges, or could they put it to use to offset the cost of the other part of the 86 million dollars that we're paying for construction? Well, my understanding is it's specific to buy those. Yeah. Okay. Mary, do you want to chime in there? I'm just saying the same thing. Yeah, specifically for this. The airport did get another grant through this same program last year, which was put towards work improving concourses. This is a five-year program. So there's different grants doled out every year. So the airport does get a ton of funding from the feds, like for the new runways, for everything. So... Yeah, a lot of that money's coming from D.C. Sorry. That's okay. So, Nick, we, we learned earlier this week that a 12-year-old boy uh, died in early February at a wilderness camp, uh, I guess up near Brevard. Uh, it's called Trails Carolina. You reported earlier this week that uh, the uh, camp operators have not been terribly cooperative with you in terms of information or with state officials, but there's new information this morning. Yeah, Mike, uh, just broke minutes ago while on this program that uh, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services has now removed all children from this wilderness camp. This is a camp uh, that builds itself as a therapeutic wilderness program, and so uh, parents send their children there who might need some intensive uh, residential therapy. Uh, and uh, this is the, the second child to die at this facility in the last decade. Previously, a 17-year-old ran away from the program and died in 2014. 
So these are one of those places where you take troubled kids and try to give them a new experience, etc. Uh, is too intent too in, there should never be a death at these camps, of course, but is two in ten years way outside expectations? Yes, okay. absolutely. Um, and what makes this uh, what compounds this, Mike, is the fact that I've been investigating this particular facility, this particular program since May of 2021. We've been talking to former participants, even a former staff member who alleged various allegations of abuse and neglect. Uh, there have been lawsuits alleging abuse and neglect. We found a track record by the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, who's responsible for regulating this facility, uh, that they weren't properly inspecting the facility in the intervals that they were supposed to. In fact, they didn't do that in the last two years. They only inspected it once in the last two years. They're supposed to inspect every 12 to 15 months. Um, and so, it is um, unfortunate that a 12-year-old boy died this month in spite of the fact that people have been calling for increased scrutiny at this facility and none came until now. Um, you also reported earlier this week that there were, uh, according to uh, the warrants, staff at Trails Carolina did not cooperate with investigators, that the warrants detailed efforts by staff to keep investigators from having access to the remaining children at the camp. Uh, how do you explain that? How do you prevent state officials from getting into your facility, which is licensed to operate? and criminal investigators. So we now have two bits. It's worth noting a spokesman for Trails Carolina denies that the camp has not cooperated with investigators. They, that denial continues in the wake of detailed warrants that say that criminal investigators from the Transylvania County Sheriff's Office were prevented from seeing the remaining children uh, who were in the bunkhouse where the 12-year-old boy died. Um, in a letter uh, sent by NCDHHS on Monday to Trails Carolina, the letter said that they weren't giving a, given access to any children at the camp until February 6th. That's three days after the 12-year-old died. But how is that possible? How, how is law enforcement prohibited from going into something where a possible crime has been committed? How is that well, possible? Well, ultimately, they ultimately went in and got that. So among the, the lack of cooperation detailed in the warrants is that Trails Carolina wouldn't give criminal investigators any names of children and that they would only give DHHS first names of children. Ultimately, we know that they executed search warrants and went and got those names, okay. uh, but it took getting a judge to sign search warrants and that being executed. I think those warrants were executed on February 7th, so four days after the 12-year-old boy died, uh, but it was not information that Trails handed over voluntarily. So early voting in North Carolina is underway. It started yesterday for the 2024 primaries. It began, it will run through uh, March the 2nd, by the way. And there is an important change that voters need to be aware of. This will be the first election where you must have photo ID. What forms are acceptable? Well, there is a wide variety. Um, <clears throat> pretty much your standard driver's license, I think, is what most people will use. Um, a lot of student IDs from different uh, colleges have been approved, although they had to be um, approved on a case-by-case -case basis, so not every single, every single college has been. Um, there's also passports, and um, there are also free voter IDs that you can go and get from the uh, Board of Elections if you don't have a photo ID, and, you know, these are IDs that will be specific to casting a ballot. And one thing uh, that people might not know, um, 
older voters, people who might have a driver's license that was valid before uh, they turned 65, I believe, but maybe don't drive anymore and haven't renewed it. Um, those are still able to be used for uh, voter identification. So this change was actually enacted in 2018, but put on pause, blocked by uh, a state court, which found, based on expert testimony from voting and civil rights advocates challenging it, that the requirement would have dis disparate, disproportionately affected uh, black voters. But now it's back. What changed? The makeup of the uh, state Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, that was... Um, one ruling that allowed this to finally uh, take effect, you know, uh, about five years after it was first um, implemented or passed. And, uh, you know, it's still um, subject to a, another legal challenge now. Uh, the NAACP has filed a lawsuit in federal district court uh, trying to block the law on the grounds that it discriminates against uh, black voters. There's a trial set for uh, this spring, I think in May. So even though this is in effect now and will be the case in the primaries, there is still a chance that it could be blocked again ahead of the general election this fall. So, you know, the, the legal roller coaster is not quite done yet. So both parties are involved in this primary, obviously, because we have candidates for president and we have candidates for governor and other offices for which both parties have candidates running. Who can vote in which primary? In other words, who votes in the Democrat, who votes in the Republican primary? Democrats in the Democrat primary, Republicans in the Republican primary, and for unaffiliated uh, voters, it's a wild world of choose your own adventure. Um, you can pick <laughs> any of the party primaries if you're unaffiliated. Okay, so for several years now, some school systems around the state and including a few in this region have broken the law. They are scuff laws by setting their own uh, calendar uh, as opposed to the state calendar for when kids go back to school and get out. Not CMS, though the previous school board chair said she wanted to. Well, now districts wanting to change their calendar may not have to break the law. What's up? Well, um, and to be clear, there's no definite action. Uh, Charlie Jeter, and the, the context for this was a fairly routine update on CMS legislative requests, which they've asked for calendar flexibility forever, as has almost every district in North Carolina, and they never get anywhere. So he does this routine update, and a board member says, well, tell us a little bit more about what you expect this year. And he says, you know, I'm thinking this could be the year for calendar flexibility. And I hope his crystal ball is better than mine because careful listeners will remember that I said that several times in 2023 and I was wrong. And he says the reason he feels that way is that logic is on his side. No one disputes the benefit to our students for them to be able to have the calendar change so they can take first semester exams prior to winter break. So state officials may have gotten further down the road because they have been discussing this, but they still shot it down. Why should he be that optimistic? Really? I don't know. You know, he knows Raleigh better than I do. And it's basically been in the hands of the state Senate and it has been controlled essentially by the tourism industry. There are some individuals, some families and educators and community members who like the system we have, who like being sure that nobody goes back before the end of August, except that increasingly they are because people just don't like the law and aren't following it. So in his remarks to the school board, Jeter did not mention that others surrounding districts have been simply ignoring this law and doing what they want and getting away with it, by the way. But board member Thelma Byers-Bailey went there. 
How important do you think the school districts that have gone rogue and instituted it in violation of the state statute have been towards moving this issue along? I'm excited to represent the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board of Education. <laughs> so he wouldn't answer the question. So the General Assembly meets for their short session beginning next month. Jeter says he'll keep pushing the board's request for legal flexibility, but lawmakers are, are they likely to take up the, that issue in this short session? And I have 20 seconds. Um, if he says so, they might. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I thought they would last year and they didn't. Who knows? And, and if other districts are breaking the law, why is CMS reluctant to do so? Five seconds. Those other districts are in Republican counties. Okay. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. We're coming right back. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. It's the local news roundup. Eli Portillo is here, senior editor for WFAE News. And Doss Helms, our education reporter at WFAE. Nick Oxner, chief investigative reporter for WBTV. And Mary Ramsey uh, is the uh, government accountability reporter for the Charlotte Observer. I want to come back to something that you just said, Nick, about why CMS has been reluctant to break the rules on doing their own calendar when other areas around us have been doing it with impunity. No, no one's cracking down on them for changing the calendar. And you said it's because of the political makeup of the counties those scofflaw districts are in. You're saying that districts in Republican counties are doing this. Democratic counties are not. Why? Are you going to give me more than five seconds to answer this? Sure, time? go uh, ahead. No, uh, look, so this is a Republican-controlled General Assembly uh, with Republican supermajorities now. And uh, if you look at the districts that have defied the law uh, and you look at who, what their county makeup is, you look at who their legislative representatives and senators are, uh, you'll notice that they're all Republican. Um, now, it's also fair to say that um, Senate Republican leader Phil Berger, arguably the most powerful person in the state of North Carolina, has not been happy about these calendar changes, but it also is there's not much of an enforcement mechanism. Um, but, you know, it certainly uh, would stand to reason that if Charlotte Mecklenburg schools broke the law, Republicans in the General Assembly would have a field day going to taking to task the Democrats in Charlotte. But could they do that? Given, again, hold on. Could they do that <laughs> given what has uh, happened already in these Republican counties with no uh, uh, negative impact? Mike, as politicians, ideological consistency is not a strength. And one county did get a consequence, we need to remember. Union yep, County, sure. which is a Republican county and is a large district, got sued by constituents who said this was a problem for them. Uh, somebody ran a horse riding camp and said it was going to cut into her revenue represented by a lawyer who also represents the tourism industry. So this is essentially what they've done is delegated enforcement to private lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And I think that is another perception is that the General Assembly might not call a special session and change the law, but also lawyers who might be inclined to target a large Democratic district with deep pockets. I think there's just a feeling that CMS 
or Wake or Durham or whatever would be painting targets on themselves. So, so and, can... and, and right to bring up the Union County case. And we should also point out how quickly that was resolved after the lawsuit was filed. I mean, it was yeah. not these things that dragged on in court for No, their lawyers basically said, you're breaking the law. You can't, we can't defend this. So they backed down. Okay. But the lawyers said that, not the legislature. Yes. So you can break Correct. the law if you're a Republican in the law and order party. Is that right? Is that how it works? So uh, voters said yes last November to the largest bond issue in state history, $2.5 billion for CMS. And this week, and we got a glimpse of the timeline on how those projects, those funded projects would unfold. What did we learn? Well, they uh, rolled out a timeline for the first dozen projects. And what we know is that the first three that we will see completed will be Billingsville, uh, Marie G. Davis, and Sedgefield Elementary, which are all being renovated and will become new homes for Montessori magnet programs, which are hugely popular. This will create some more space for them. Um, after that, we will see, let me see, in 2006, we're going to have uh, some more renovations that's going to allow the shuffle of the arts magnets. Uh, First Ward will become a arts middle school. Northwest will become a high school only. A new middle school that's been in the works will be completed. And then the last of these projects, we're looking at August of 2028, essentially almost five years after the bond project. And those are some big ones, a, a massive teardown and replacement of buildings at North Mech and a whole new high school um, second ward. And, and you say that because these first 12 projects are, have a finish date by August 2028, which we know will not be met, they, they never meet these deadlines. Uh, you say that raises a question. How long is it going to take to finish all 30 projects? at that rate? Has that question been posed to the school board? Uh, well, actually, one of the board members sort of obliquely said, well, can you tell us more about the next steps? And and I got that question on social media, because if you assume that they're going to wait until all these are done, there's no way they get finished. But what uh, Dennis Lacaria, who's the chief planner for CMS, told me was that we will be starting additional projects during this five-year time frame. And he also says these long time frames are not unusual. We front loaded projects that we knew were going to take a lot longer, like Second Ward and North Mech. We know those are going to be long involved projects. So there's a reason why we started them earlier, but we'll still be done with everything in the in the five to seven year window. OK, so one final story, and that is the fact that these book bans or the attempts at book bans continue. And there's been a kind of, a, I guess, a rules change is the way to say it at CMS. Take us through that, man. So this summer, the General Assembly approved what's called a Parents Bill of Rights, and it's 12 pages long, complicated, but districts have had to put their own policies in place. And one of the things is they need to have a process for parents to challenge material that they consider inappropriate, either in the classrooms or libraries. And we've seen uh, Brooke Weiss, who is the president of the local Moms for Liberty chapter, file quite a number. Uh, she had initially challenged eight books that were in her daughter's high school library. She has now added um, several more that are in this popular series by Sarah J. Moss that are um, fantasy and sometimes sexually explicit. But so the first step is it goes to the school, and if the school says, no, we're keeping it, then she can appeal to a district-level panel. If the district-level panel says, yeah, we still think it's fine, we're going to keep it. And they've been very thoughtful. You know, they, they haven't just dismissed her out of hand. They've looked at, yeah, there's some, some troubling content in here, but we think it's outweighed or we don't think it's outweighed by the other merits. And if the district goes against her, she can go to the superintendent. And the superintendent, in one case, said, 
yeah, I'm looking at this book and I know they said they'd keep it. We're taking it out. But the superintendent says no. And this is the step that they finally reached this week. She, she or any parent can go to a panel of school board members and a three board panel member panel of school board members heard her case and said, no, we're, we agree. We're going to keep the books. So we know that this is a concerted and, and well-orchestrated effort by an organization called Moms for Liberty. Uh, it's happening around the country. It's not local, uh, but there are local branches of this, and they're having a local impact. Is there anything like it on the other side? Are there any groups of people saying, no, keep these books in the library, keep these books available? Yes, various local groups. I don't know that there's a national group that has achieved the same prominence as Moms for Liberty, but almost every district where there is a push to challenge or ban books, there is a counter push, whether it's coming from librarians, whether it's coming from parents. Um, that they have, I think, the in North Carolina, there's the public school strong movement has been really pushing back. Um, in Catawba County, which has kind of their own homegrown variations of both, they have the Mama Bears of Catawba County, and they have um, Freedom Readers, I think, is their group. So, yes, people are are speaking up to essentially trust the librarians, trust the educators, and trust our kids to be able to read something that, you know, might be sexual, there might be some violence, there might be some difficult content. Uh, many of these books are, you know, they're about sex trafficking, they're about, you know, really uncomfortable topics, but they're also saying, guess what? kids' lives are really complicated. And in some cases, knowing about this helps students talk when they might be victims of something. We'll keep our eye on that. Former uh, Donald Trump ally and head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, was rumored, is rumored to have fallen out of favor with citizen Trump. This week, uh, he announced that he wanted to see Michael Watley, who is the head of the North Carolina Republican Party, as head of the Republican National Committee with... His daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, Eric Trump's wife, as co-chair. Now, she's lived for a while in North Carolina, too. Uh, so does this surprise anybody? Eli. Well, I don't think uh, I don't think Michael Watley is a surprise. He was an early supporter of Trump, um, even you know before he secured the nomination in 2016. He's had a lot of uh, positions around the RNC and national Republican politics for decades. He's worked uh, in the first Trump administration as um, you know everything from helping to shepherd appointees through to being an informal advisor and helping with North Carolina. So I think uh, he's kind of a natural choice. Um, you know, Laura Trump, I think, just accentuates or um, puts an emphasis on the degree to which the Republican Party has been uh, personalized as the party of, um, you know, Donald Trump, the, the man in the family. It's difficult for me to imagine the Democratic reaction if, you know, uh, Joe Biden or Barack Obama or the Clintons wanted to put, you know, one of their uh, one of their children on the the DNC nationally. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, it's the nepotism gravy train. Uh, Trump has said that his uh, daughter-in-law is quote dedicated to all that MAGA stands for. So how might the GOP change under a Watley Trump leadership and a President Trump? 
I don't think this is going to amount in more of a change. I actually think it's going to keep it more consistent. I mean, it's hard to argue that Ron McDaniel, who's been the RNC chairwoman for years, uh, wasn't also executing the Trump agenda, I think. She'd also just been in the job for a really long time. This comes, this change comes amid lagging fundraising numbers. I think the RNC had one of its worst quarters in a while, uh, last quarter. Um, and it's also worth noting Larry Trump's been around. Uh, uh, Donald Trump wanted her to run for Senate uh, in North Carolina's last uh, election for Senate that Ted Budd ultimately ended up winning um, because Larry didn't run. And um, yeah. Okay. Uh, the debate in Congress uh, has been dragging on for weeks now over funding for Ukraine and Israel. Most Democrats are in favor. Only 22 Republicans in the Senate are on board. The vote was 70 seven zero to twenty nine with North Carolina senators on opposite sides of the vote. Senator uh, Tom Tillis in favor. Ted Budd not. Uh, they cast ab- opposing vo- votes on Tuesday, canceling each other out. Uh, and with that vote, Tillis broke with Donald Trump, something most Republicans are not willing to do. How should we read that? Well, it's interesting to see, excuse me, the, you know, kind of the party of Reagan continue to, um, you know, equivocate on providing aid to um, Ukraine opposing Russia. I think uh, it's a point that's been made many times nationally, but it's tough to square that with, you know, the the evil empire uh, rhetoric of Republicans in decades past. So I think this continues to show the split between um, the different wings of the party in the America first um, age. And, you know, I think uh, Tom Tillis, you know, he's there till 2027. He doesn't really have to um, port Trump's favor right now. So I think uh, he's got freedom wiggle room to um, follow his conscience on this one. So well, Tom well Tillis... it's not necessarily surprising. Tom Tillis is, has taken a more uh, moderate, it's relative, but moderate bent in his record. He's also co-chair of the bipartisan NATO Observers Committee. So he very much works around issues involving NATO, which is at the heart, and European defense, which is at the heart, obviously, of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, and, you know, Tillis gets criticized from many North Carolina Republicans for not being in lockstep with with President Trump and has faced those criticism for a while. And he says, Tom Tillis says, that uh, the $95 million in military aid to both countries is essential for stability and not passing it would damage our international relationships. And he told Queen City News that it is the job of the U.S. to lead. I believe that it is a solid, balanced policy, and I hope when it goes over to the House, they will take it up and pass it. It's a matter of national security, homeland security, and and, and really um, absolutely essential for stability. So Bud believes, Senator Bud believes, that we need to secure our own border before helping foreign countries. Tillis uh, did face censure from the North Carolina GOP, although we don't know over what, I don't think. It's unspecified. Could that happen again? And should Tillis even be concerned about that happening again? No, it could happen again. I don't think he'd be concerned. Um, ultimately, he, you know, I I watched him speak at a Donald Trump rally in uh, 2019 and get booed. Uh, but, you know, Donald Trump still invited him to speak at his rally. And so it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. 
Okay. Ever since uh, the recent trades that brought Grant Williams and Seth Curry to the Charlotte Hornets, something has happened. The, t- <laughs> the team has been winning. Uh, their streak is now four games. It is the, first, the, the, the team's first winning streak of the season, and it will stand through the weekend because they're not playing this weekend. They don't have any games scheduled until next week. Are the newcomers responsible for what's happening here? Yeah, I mean, they look like a different team. And um, I think at the beginning of the year, they were talked about as, you know, maybe a team that could be uh, promising and and could make the playoffs maybe. Um, that went away very quickly. And I think, you know, trading away uh, veterans like Terry Rozier and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, trading P.J. Washington and Gordon Hayward, it shows like, hey, their strategy uh, of blowing up the entire team and replacing most of their starters and their bench might be yielding some benefits. But, yeah. you know, they're still 13 and 41 overall. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to take a miracle to get to the play-in game. Well, Grant Williams led the team on Monday night with 21 points. Uh, Curry scored 18. And Brandon, let's see, he didn't lead the team, excuse me, but Brand, rookie Brandon Miller led the team with 26 points, helping to blow out Atlanta, uh, 122 to 99. He said the Spectrum Center was rocking. Loved it tonight. Um, you know, I heard the, the, the fans, you know, the Let's Go Hornets chant. Um, I've heard that three games in a row, so I think that's, you know, kind of a big key for us because, you know, just going in, you know, having our home fans cheering us on, I think that can bring us a lot of energy and momentum. So someone said that suddenly the Hornets are fun again. Okay, that's because they're winning, but can this last? Well, like I said, 13 and 41 is not where you want to be sitting. But I think at this point, if you can put something fun on the court, draw people in, give them something to cheer for, and maybe make the second half of the season uh, at least competitive, that'll go a long way. Okay. Eli Eli Portillo, the senior editor for WFAE News, and Dos Helms, education reporter for WFAE, Mary Ramsey, government accountability reporter for the Charlotte Observer, and Nick Oxner, chief investigative reporter for WBTV. Thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.